Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Welcome to the Daily Jungle. What's going on? What a day. Not just because Philly is celebrating a world championship, but because Woj bombs were dropping left and right throughout the program, and the Cavaliers just gutted the place. We were all over a crazy day in the association, and a strong day for guests. I caught up with 16-year NBA vet Karan Butler. Ohio State basketball coach Chris Holtman joined me to talk about his Buckeyes and the moves that the Cavs were making, and two-time U.S. Olympian Jeremy Bloom came on the program. Former Notre Dame basketball coach Digger Phelps called into the listener line on his own to talk about his time in Pennsylvania and Notre Dame. Lots to get to, and the Daily Jungle starts right now. <laughs> Lots to get to, but where else could I start today? Where else could I start today but with Philly? I can't start anywhere but Philly. Because as we speak, right now, 2 million Eagle fans are packed beak to beak from Broad and Patterson all the way down to the Art Museum. 2 million fueled up 215ers letting out six decades of pent-up rage and angst that finally gives away to a Super Bowl title. And right now, the city of brotherly love is absolutely lit. It's lit. Two million people. Let's try and put that number in perspective. Two million people. That's like the link at capacity multiplied by 30. Two million. Baltimore, Las Vegas, and Portland's population combined 400,000 people per mile for the parade route. I mean, that's insane. That's what that is. That's insane. And the parade's been popping off for about an hour already. But let's not get it twisted. Hundreds of thousands of Birds fans hit that city and staked their spot before the sun even came up. Check out this group. 6.30 a.m. local time, already going with a chant four and a half hours before the parade began. They went with that and it was pitch dark. The sun had not come up. It was still pitch dark. Speaking of the sun coming up, the forecast is sunny. It looks beautiful. I'm watching the parade right now up on the monitor. It looks beautiful. It looks chilly. The temperature's 31. The wind chill makes that feel like 21, but I would call that a Minneapolis heat wave. It is a beautiful day there. But that's still pretty damn cold for anybody that did not just spend eight days in the bold north. But check this. The fans are not the only ones who are ready. My man Chris Long, freaking Chris Long, dressed to the nines in a fur coat, shades, and a throwback Allen Iverson gamer. He hit Twitter with that look at 7 a.m. local time, four hours before the party. If you're watching on CBS Sports Network, you can see it. This guy looks incredible. Four hours before 7 a.m. local time with the simple caption, quote, parade ready. Hell yes, you are, Chris. One more thing about that route. It's a five-mile crawl south to north on Broad Street. Here is an epic video that the Eagles dropped a few days ago to give a little background on Broad Street itself. At 13 miles, Broad Street is Philadelphia's longest straightaway. It runs north to south, right through the heart of the city. And it just so happens to wind up down by Lincoln Financial Field. 
It may only be 100 feet wide, but we'll find a way to make room for everyone. Oh, <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, what? I'm sorry. Did I just hear that Broad Street is only a 100 feet wide? Did he say 100 feet wide? A few hundred feet wide or 100 feet wide? I think he said it was 100 feet wide. I mean, for real. 100 feet wide. 2 million people on a street 100 feet wide. 100 feet wide. Run it back one more time. Alvy. only be 100 feet wide. 100 feet wide. A couple million people on a street 100 feet wide. The only thing that I could ever compare that to, and you gauchos understand this, I'm not sure if it still goes on in Isla Vista. Isla Vista is the college town for UC Santa Barbara, where I went to college. Every year at Halloween, there's a very famous street in Isla Vista called DP, Del Playa, and it runs one mile. One mile, and it's maybe 20 feet wide. And literally 30 to 40,000 people would slam into that one mile and walk back and forth like this all night long. You can only imagine what sort of things people were on, what people were doing on Halloween night. And we walked back and forth. It would take literally three hours or more to get to one part, to start at one end of that one mile street and walk to the other end. And then another couple hours to walk back. Very strange times. That's what this feels like. If Broad Street's got 2 million people and the street is 100 feet wide. All right, then. And I can't help but think that some of these fans will be lubed and drunk. And if the street is that narrow and you've got that many people, what do you do? You have no choice. You've got to go vertical. You have to go vertical with it, and you have to start scaling buildings. You know, considering the parade street is an entire 60 feet more narrow than a football field. Seriously, cut the width of a football field by 30%, and apparently that's Broad Street. The width, not the length. I mean, hell, that's tight. That is really tight. But then again, what can we expect from a city that was founded in 1682? Now for some brass tacks. The parade ain't a party for everybody. We covered this yesterday, and I bring it up right now because that party is in full force. It's still going on as we speak. It's a party for Philly fan. It's a working holiday, though, for Philly PD. Let me very quickly reset the mayor's message to a certain group of people because this is one elected official that did not mince words. The small number of knuckleheads should stay home. Every, every city that's gone through this had this uh, celebration. There's always some somebody, some element of people who do this. Uh, there were literally tens of thousands of people on the street, uh, and you know, the knucklehead um, contingent was extremely small. Uh, the, our, our, I know our police department is working hard to identify those particular individuals and to also make arrests with them. I believe somebody may be even turning themselves in um, as a result of the car being turned over. You heard the man. Stay home, Nux. Stay home, Nux. Then again, I understand it's probably too late for that. But just in case, don't act like a knucklehead. Party, rage, celebrate. Go ham. Just don't eat horse poop or flip cars. It's not that hard. And if you happen to not be able to control your inner knucklehead, the police chief is going to use your own video against you because we know this. If you're going to go knucklehead, you will roll tape. In large part, some of these people are helping us with their own video. That shows you how idiotic it is. But who am I kidding? Who am I kidding? There'll be 700,000 
several hundred thousand or more than a million or a couple of million that will be on their best behavior and a few knuckleheads and knucks gonna knuck and probably wind up rocking a pair of silver bracelets before that day is over. Just do not swing on any animals ever. One last thing, Philly fan. Go on and live your best life today. You earned it. And for the next couple of hours, your city is ground zero for bedlam and joy. You earned that. The entire sports world is looking at you, Philly. Not mocking you, Philly, but envying you, Philly. Respecting you, Philly. So go ahead and enjoy that. Thaw out in the spotlight. We are all looking at you. Because nobody gave you a chance when Carson Wentz went down. Look at you now. You've got a five-mile Super Bowl parade heading down the heart of the city as we speak. And I've got nothing left to say at this point. Nothing left to say at this point except fly, Eagles, fly. Fly, Eagles, fly. It's your day. You earned it. Enjoy it. Buckeyes head coach Chris Holtman is my guest. Chris, good to have you back on. How are you? Great. To, how are you, Jim? Great to be with you. I'm, by the way, I'm interested in that Cavs uh, movement there. I'm very interested in that. Uh, I, I had not heard that, so I'm excited to hear what they're doing. All right, so if you've been watching this, did you see the first move they made when they made the deal with the Lakers earlier this morning? I did not. I did not. Okay, well, we'll go back to that in a minute, but what they just did, they just traded. Utah just traded Rodney Hood to Cleveland, according to Woj, and they made a deal earlier today where they sent Isaiah Thomas and wow, Channing Fry to the Lakers in exchange for Clarkson and Nance. Wow, wow! And they might those be moving. Are... What do you think about that? What's your gut reaction to those deals? That's really an interesting. Um, I did not know that. So they traded Isaiah, huh? They did. Um, wow, I did. I just didn't see that coming. Obviously. Uh, live in the great state of Ohio here and and follow the Cavs pretty quickly and or pretty closely and and uh, and and love uh, love that organization. Um, I'm interested to see. Obviously, they they feel strongly about uh, about those decisions and, and feel strongly about their chances here uh, on the closing stretch here. So, uh, big big fan of LeBron and and uh, how he plays and um, certainly pulling for those guys. Clones, can I borrow a second? so I can talk with you about Stamps.com. Now, here's a New Year's resolution that you can actually keep. Add Stamps.com to your business and save a ton of time and money this year. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you. I don't need that resolution this year because I've already done it, and I wish I had done it sooner. Stamps.com has saved me so much time and so much money. You see, Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. Stamps.com is the better way to get postage. You simply use your computer to print U.S. postage for any letter or package, any class of mail and you let the mailman pick it up. You don't leave your office. There's no more lugging mail to the post office. There is no more hassle. So Stamps.com saves you time and money. Almost everything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. Stamps.com. Convenient, easy, reliable, efficient. And those are all the reasons why I use Stamps.com. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. Are you ready for a happier new year? Then go to stamps.com. Hit the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in jungle. That's stamps.com. Enter jungle. Once again, to take advantage of this great offer, stamps.com. Enter jungle. That's stamps.com. 
Now it's back to our Daily Jungle. Chris Holman joining us. I appreciate your thoughts on the fly, Chris. With that, you've got a lot going on yourself. Let me first ask you, when you and I spoke in June, shortly after you took over at Ohio State, when you consider where the program was then, what would you have said if I said that in February you'd be 21-5, and in first place in the Big Ten, and coming off a win over number three Purdue in their house? Well, I'd have had you know I'd have had one of our team doctors give you a good a good <laughs> thorough examination, Jim. Sure. Um, I think it, I think it just um, th- this has maybe been um, the most uh, amazing uh, story that I've I've been able to be a part of um, in coaching. Uh, you you know uh, we started out kind of five and three and and had some struggles early. Yeah, we had good teams beat us, Jim, but. Um, had some struggles early. Um, uh, the former team that I coached, Butler, beat us in the in the PK eighty, and then uh, Clemson beat us, and you know, five and three at that point, and to now be you know twenty one and five um, is a testament to the leadership of our older guys and uh, how close this group has been. It's it's been a ride unlike anything I've been a part of, and. You know, we're trying to stay in the moment as much as possible because, you know, we want it to continue. Ohio State is at home Saturday against Iowa. Chris Holman, my guest, you know, watching that game last night, before the game you had talked to Matt Norlander from CBS Sports, and you told him that in order to beat Purdue, quote, we're going to have to offensively be as efficient as we've been all year. Purdue's going to have to miss some shots. They're too complete of a team. They can get to the Final Four. They can get to a national championship. And to quote, you also said that you were going to have to make some open shots, play that complete game, that as complete a game as you played all year. So what do you make of how your team lived up to all of those goals in that one night? I think we hit on some of those marks. I don't know that uh, we did have some guys step up and make shots um, that that had not made it up to that uh, point in the season, really, or at least had had, had some inconsistencies. So I think any time you go on the road and you play an elite team, and that's what Purdue is. They're an elite team. You know, I, I'm not saying they're going to make a Final Four, although I think they have a legitimate chance. We all know how hard that is, but they're an elite team, and it was an elite environment. Um, as good as basketball environment as I've ever coached in uh, incredible fan base there and they got a they got an incredible team but I think we hit on some of those marks uh, primarily being uh, we were able to we were able to, to, to defend consistently throughout the night and give their bigs a couple different looks late um, and you know we decided to go small with a smaller lineup really in the last 10 minutes of the game Jim because we were not being as efficient offensively and, uh, you know, we got down 14, and I felt like we had to get in a little bit better rhythm uh, offensively, and that small lineup helped us. Now, Chris, I mean, exactly what's going on here? You go from being picked 11th to being first in your conference, one of the best teams in the country. I know the season's not over. I know you're focused on Iowa, but there's something magical happening here. How do you explain this turnaround? Well, um, yeah, I appreciate you saying that. We are we are focused on on Iowa here on Saturday. I, I think um, you know we, we got a kid, Kata Bates Diop, who I believe is a bona fide uh, NBA player, going to be a good pro for a number of years. And he was injured last year, and early in his career, he's a redshirt junior, Jim. And earlier in his career, um, he had kind of played, um, uh, you know. A little bit of a, a role uh, because they had some talented young guys uh, in the program here, and 
he has emerged uh, this year, and he's been forced to emerge because we have some depth issues, and uh, he's emerged, and Jay Sean Tate, those two older guys, um, I think were hungry. You know, it, when we got here in June, one of the first things I realized is this was group was really hungry um, to get back to the NCAA tournament. They had not been in a couple years, and this is a proud program. And I think anytime you're a coach and you can tap into that hunger, um, it's a great source of motivation throughout the year because uh, you can remind them of some of the th- struggles that happened in the past and maybe reasons why uh, there were struggles. And um, we've had incredible chemistry, Kata coming back from injury, and and being hungry to, I think, prove some people wrong has been has been great motivation for this group. And Kata had that putback last night with less than three seconds left that gave you the lead. And I know you'd been on him and encouraging him to be even more assertive this year. And he had a big game again last night, and he's played like that. Meanwhile, Chris, as you and I speak, your Cavaliers made another deal. How about this? According to Woj, they're sending Dwayne Wade to Miami. My goodness. For a pick or... It just said, we don't know yet. It just says they're trading Dwayne Wade to Miami. League sources tell ESPN. Well, that is unbelievable. Major, that's a major okay. roster overhaul. Here it is. Miami, according to Woj, Miami is going to send a heavily protected second-round pick to Cleveland for yeah, Wade, a second-round pick. That's a complete overhaul in Cleveland, isn't it? It really is. It really is. Obviously, uh, um you know they're trying to uh, trying to make a run here, and and I give them a lot of credit for that. They're uh, doing everything they can here to put themselves in position with uh, the back half of the season in front of them. So, uh, going to be really interesting to see how how quickly that uh, that new group new group comes together. But like I said, when you got a guy like LeBron leading the way, um, you, you put yourself in a great position. You know, it seems to me that if they trade for everybody in the league, maybe LeBron will like it enough that he'll want to stay. <laughs> We're talking to Chris Holtman. Let me ask you this. When you're, when you're taking over a program in your first season and you're dealing with players who did not commit to play for you and who you did not recruit, how do you go about developing the kind of relationships that you have with young men and getting the buy-in that obviously you're getting to have the kind of success that you're having? How have you done that? Well, the one thing, you know, I think the one thing we as a coaching staff did, did not want to do is, you know, we were really fortunate. I signed an eight-year contract, and it's obviously a long-term commitment on my part and their part. Uh, but the one thing we didn't want to do is sometimes when you start a program and, and you believe that it's going to be in a rebuild mode is the first year can almost be looked at as, I don't want to say a throwaway year, but um, the rebuild starts and you forget about those other um, th- th- those young men that have been in the program that are older guys that that really uh, deserve um, your full commitment. And um, I-, I think that's the way we looked at it simply is is that, that Jay Sean Tate, who's a senior, Kata Bates-Diop, who's a fourth-year uh, redshirt junior, Cam Williams, who's a fifth-year senior, like they deserved our very best uh, that we could bring to them. And whether that was going to be uh, a good regular season, an no postseason, or an NIT, or an NCAA tournament. Uh, they deserved our, our very best. And um, we, we did not want to discard this year in any way, and we never wanted to give that impression. And we tried to make that pretty clear to them early on uh, in the process of getting to know them. And I think any coach will tell you that um, 
if you're gonna if you're gonna have a successful relationship, I think it it begins with honesty, and out of that came a a, um, a good amount of trust on on their end and on our end. And I think we realized pretty early on that we had some some pretty special kids to build around. Chris Holton and my guest, one last thought for you. In developing that trust and doing so early on, before you were officially introduced as the head coach on a Monday, you had a secret meeting with the players that included a meal in the locker room on a Friday. A number of the players have said that that meeting was the start of everything. Can you give me a sense? What was that meeting about and what was that meal like? Well, you know, um, Gene Smith, our athletic director here, does an outstanding job. He he actually kind of had thought, you know, he was he wanted me to potentially do the press conference on on Friday, and I just I wasn't quite ready because I I didn't have a chance to just process it all, and it just really made the decision uh, on Thursday night. And I said, hey, I just I just don't feel like I feel like it's too soon, it's too quick. I've got a team here at Butler that I need to, you know, have have a little bit of time with. Um, and he and I talked and he said, Hey, uh, what do you think about us sneaking you over here, um, outside of the media, um, to meet with the players? And I said, Oh, that's a great idea. I would like to do that. Uh, if we can get in and out, uh, without anyone noticing on, on, on Friday. So they sent a plane over and I, I just flew over really quickly and spent about two and a half, three hours in the locker room. Um, at that time, there were only about seven or eight guys. Um, and, you know, we just we had a really honest conversation about, you know, hey, these are some of my expectations. But more than anything, I'm anxious to get to know them. And I followed up on Saturday when I was back in Indianapolis with a phone call and text. And... Um, you know, I think that was, as you mentioned, hopefully the beginning of them trusting um, me and trusting us as a coaching staff. Show friend Tom Haberstrow just put this out there. Here are the guys that are out. If you're joining us right now, the trade deadline's coming up at noon Pacific, 3 Eastern. The Cavaliers have gone absolutely crazy. I've never seen a team revamp a roster like this before the trade deadline. And there's still plenty of time between now and the trade deadline. There's still 90 minutes left. How would you like to be a member of the Cavaliers right now? How would you like to be anybody who's left not named LeBron James and spending the next 90 minutes, given who's already left? In fact, Dave McMenamin from ESPN tweeted, quote, text just now from a Cavs player who remains on the roster after the upheaval. Quote, what just happened? I'll tell you what just happened, unnamed Cavs player. You just lost half your teammates. In about an hour. All right, so here are the guys that are out. Isaiah Thomas, out, coming here to L.A. Dewanye, out, going back to Miami. Derek Rose, out. Jay Crowder, out. Iman Shumpert, out. Channing Fry, out. 2018 pick, out. Here are the guys coming in. Lakers, Jordan Clarkson. Larry Nance, Jr., they got George Hill, somebody they had been rumored to be chasing. They get Rodney Hood. They get a heavily protected future second-round pick. So a couple of thoughts. Now, what are they doing here? Are they rebuilding because LeBron is going to leave? Or are they revamping to make one last-ditch effort to convince LeBron to stay? 
Or are they doing something because they had to break that thing up because that was the worst locker room ever? Any or all of the above. Put it this way. But before I think, before I say exactly what I think is going on, I got to let the dust settle because they might not be done yet. Like I said, before the end of the segment, they might make another deal. They may trade eight more guys. I'm guessing LeBron is doing the exact same thing. Sitting back, taking it all in, seeing what's happening, seeing who is going out the door, see who they're getting in return. Then he has to meet all his new teammates and see how the thing comes together on the floor and whether or not the pieces fit, whether or not the whole thing meshes. But in the meantime, this is the ultimate like, damn, what the hell just happened? What's going on here? And are they done yet? Absolutely incredible. Cavalier fans, what do you make of this? Let's go to Twitter, at Hitman Canadian tweets. My son's 2,000-piece Lego kit is easier to assemble than this Cavs roster. I mean, what are they doing? Are they making move after move after move to get the best kind of player they can get to change out the chemistry? Are any of these pieces going to fit? And we've seen this traditionally, big moves at the trade deadline. It takes teams a long time to gel. How are they going to make all these pieces fit? Or maybe, again, is that not the plan? Do they know LeBron is going to leave, and are they setting this thing up for the future? Allen and Raleigh is in. War of the Cavs, treating the roster like a game of draw poker. LeBron James is their ace, and they have discarded the rest of their hand. It's not a bad analogy. I mean, that certainly is how it feels. I've never seen a team get busted up like that and reassembled at the trade deadline. Never seen anything like this. Duanye going back to Miami. Woj working it hard. Woj just tweeted as part of a three-team deal, Cleveland sends the 2020 second-round pick via Miami to Sacramento. So they get George Hill. My man Tom Tolbert's in. At Byron Jr. 23 tweets, the Cleveland what-the-bleep alleres. We go to South Bend, Indiana. You know him as a legendary college basketball coach and analyst, one of the iconic names in the game. Digger Phelps apparently is watching the game. He has ties to Pennsylvania, which we can get into, and he has decided to call in. Digger, my friend, is it really you? Yeah, Jim, it's me, and you're not going to kick butt with your staff. They knew it, and so you just let it go, buddy. My man, my man. Digger, it is so great to hear your voice. How are things? What's going on? Things are great. You know, I tried to call the other day when, obviously, your phone line was so busy, but I waited till today, and the seat of Prade in Philly, back in 66 to 70, 1966 to 1970, I was a young assistant coach for Dick Carter at the University of Pennsylvania. And the Eagles back then, and they were coached by Joe Q. Eric, used to play at Franklin Field on Penn's campus. And in the west end zone, Waitman Hall, where the athletic offices were, there was bleachers down below, but we could see upstairs and look out the window and watch the Eagles play every Sunday. And for all those Eagle fans back then, in Franklin Field, you know, at one time it was 80,000, went down to 60,000 seats. They were so loyal, and yet I'm sure a lot of them, because I'm 76 today, have passed, but they're looking down from heaven saying, Fly, eagle, fly. They got it done, and the seat is prayed with 2 million people 
It's the best thing that ever happened to Philly. Nothing against the Phillies or the Flyers or what went on with the 76ers back when, but this is just incredible and how this has finally become a reality. Digger Phelps joining us on the program. So you're watching this thing right now, Digger. Two million people. You know what it represents to those people because you work there, as you pointed out, at Penn. Can you explain what it means to them? You've been a part of some parades. You've been a part of some big wins. But for people who've waited that long, Digger, is there a way to put into words what it represents to them in their lives? Well, as you know, the NFL has always been a big inspiration. I grew up in the Hudson Valley near West Point, Beacon, New York. And back then, it was the Giants. You know, there were no Jets. It was the Giants. It was Y.A. Tittle. And then all of a sudden, when I end up at the University of Pennsylvania and, and as an assistant coach, and that fall, here comes the Philadelphia Eagles playing NFL games. And if we go back 52 years, which the first Super Bowl was, and go back to when Vince Lombardi coached the Green Bay Packers and won championships before the first Super Bowl, now it's the Lombardi Trophy, for Philly to wait and wait and wait, but to be loyal, to never give up. That's one thing about that city of brotherly love. They know what it is, and they're ready to pay their dues, and if it took this long, this is why you're seeing this celebration the way it's turned out. And to have two million people there, and for them to end up at the art museum with Rocky <laughs> up there on the steps, it's only appropriate. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you how big it is. If Digger Phelps is calling me from South Bend to talk about the parade in Philly, that tells you how big it is. Digger, I so appreciate it. Before I let you go, you know, I, I mentioned the other day that my son now, Jake, is in 11th grade here in California, and he's looking at colleges, and he and my wife, Janet, took a trip to South Bend, and he was just awed by it. It literally is his top choice right now. As somebody who coached there and had the success that you had there, what's it like for you at this point in your life to be in South Bend? Well, I, I have never left. Father Hesburg was a big inspiration. I mean, he was the godfather of the Civil Rights Act for President Eisenhower back in 1957. But the thing is this about Notre Dame. It's not just the four years you're here. It's the four years of once you leave, now you identify the Notre Dame Network, which is worldwide, some 300 alumni club. And if your son is looking into Notre Dame, tell him the first thing they look for with 20,000 applicants, and they take 1,000 men, 1,000 women, is to see what you have done to lead, lead a community service project, like getting food for the homeless over the holidays or coats in the warm weather. Uh, you know, when you need it in the cold weather for people who are poor or anything to show leadership and being a mentor or a tutor for kids after school. He's got to do that. But let me just say this. If he has a chance to come to Notre Dame, it's second to none. And I'm not just saying, because there's great schools in this country, the Ivy League, Stanford, even UCLA and Southern Cal. But it's what goes on in your life after Notre Dame. That Notre Dame network is second to none. And I've had 56 guys play for me. 56 guys graduate, and their life after basketball, Scott Paddock, president of Chicago Speedway, you know, NASCAR, John Paxson runs the Bulls, Brooks Boyer, base, uh, point guard, he is now vice president of marketing for uh, what goes on with the Chicago White Sox, Stan Wilcox, by the way, this weekend, it's the 40th anniversary of our Final Four team from 78, they're all coming back, Stan Wilcox was a freshman on that team, he's athletic director at Florida, there's a guy named um, when I look at all these great players, a guy named Mike Mitchell ended up on the West Coast. He tore his knee up two years in a row. His senior year, I captained the team. We beat San Francisco. He was the other guard with John Paxson. He's the only guy in 20 years I gave a game ball to. He is now, he became president of Nestle's USA Beverage. So it's life after basketball, and that's something we do here. And when you saw that survey a few years back, when 70% of the NFL and NBA players five years after retire bankrupt, that's not Notre Dame. 
Digger Phelps, I'm sold. The kid's taking his ACT this week. We got to prep him up. Digger Phelps joining us from South Bend. My friend, Digger, I can't believe how hyped I am that you found the show. You called the listen line. You gave us your thoughts on the parade. You sound amazing, Digger. It is so good to have you on the show. Thank you very much, my friend. Well, you've got my number now, and if anything comes up with your son, you call me, and we'll see what goes on with his admission status since he's only a junior. My man, Digger, you are the absolute best. I'm going to take you up on that. We are joined by Karan Butler. Karan, it's so good to have you back. How are you? Hey, what's going on, brother? How you been? Good, good, Karan. How about you? How you feeling? Man, I feel great, man. A lot of news out there going around. Uh, <laughs> it got me going. got me moving around. My mind rushing. <laughs> You know, you and I have got lots to cover, which I want to get to. But on a day like today, Karan, I, I got to ask you. I mean, there are so many things going on right now, and the Cavaliers getting busted up the way they have. As somebody who played that game, what's a day like this like from a player's perspective, especially as you bump up against that trade deadline? Hey, listen, I'm gonna tell you from from yesterday. You can you can sense as you watch the Cleveland Cavaliers play the Minnesota Timberwolves that you know it was just one of those things where they was heavily they was heavy mentally out there on the court so the chemistry was still affected and at the same time even with the celebration the only person that knew that they was not going to be moved you know for sure is LeBron James and he was able to celebrate freely and then you saw like it was different celebrations happening on the court in that moment when he hit that magnificent shot down the stretch so it's just amazing to see the chemistry issues that they was facing and having but now, you know, with more, you know, definitive role players coming in, it's going to be a lot different. Karan Butler joining us. You know I called you to talk about you, and I will, but just one quick follow. If you know LeBron, what do you think that he's thinking right now as he watch, is watches that roster being completely rebuilt on the fly? What do you think is going through his mind? Well, I, I, know, I, I know he's really thinking about right now as he made the statement that he's thinking long haul of this season. And he's thinking about how can I compete to get to the Eastern Conference Finals to come out the East again this year and, you know, thinking about facing whatever team comes out the West. And, you know, that's some of the things he's he's really, like, homing in on and thinking about. And they needed to get younger. You know, they really did. You know, they you, as you watch the Cleveland Cavaliers, you saw a team that lacked a lot of effort for whatever reason. And they had the talent. They had the names. Uh, you know, all so many perennial all-stars and guys that carry their teams for years. And, um, you know, you just wondered, you know, what was missing or was the message wrong? But they definitely had chemistry issues and they wasn't meshing well. Karan Butler joining us. All right, thanks for your thoughts on that. Now, you announced your retirement two days ago. How did it make you feel when you made the announcement and that it's now official? Uh, you know what? It, it felt fresh just because, you know, I'll never forget, you know, sitting down in Sacramento on Kobe's farewell tour and me and him going to dinner with each other and we're we're talking and, you know, we're just explaining the basketball notebook part of, you know, retirement. You know, and that's that's what we're talking about is falling in love with your first love and saying goodbye to your first love and learning how to love again. And, you know, I was at a place then where, you know, the transitional part was it was there. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I, I was having fun doing it. I already made the seamless transition in that space. Now I just had to say goodbye to it officially. It's like, okay, you're done. On to the next thing. And, you know, that took time to, you know, be okay with doing that. And, you know, I got to a point where I was, you know, mentally okay with saying goodbye to basketball. From a playing standpoint, even though I haven't been actively playing in almost two years, and then going into this space. 
you know, and it feels good. It really does. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying my job. I'm, I'm enjoying my workplace. I'm enjoying creating things and content. And, you know, I'm looking forward to, you know, so many more years of productivity. Karan Butler joining us. You know, as part of the announcement, you wrote this great piece in the Players' Tribune, and you started by writing about that plane trip to Miami after you were drafted by the Heat. It was your mother's first time in a plane. First of all, what was the plane like, and what did your mom make of that entire experience? <laughs> it was it was crazy because it was a private plane, you know, chartered by the Miami Heat. It, it was the team private plane, and when she got on the plane, you know, she never flown. We drove to New York, obviously. We uh, didn't have no money. Um, and, you know, we were just waiting for my name to be called. And once we got on that plane, she was just like, wow, like, this is amazing. And I, I said, Mom, look, all planes aren't like this. So don't – I want you to understand that now. And, you know, I was trying to keep my cool the whole time, you know, as I'm sitting there with, you know, uh, front office folks from the Miami Heat not knowing – but it was just a mind-blowing experience because they had the plane catered, and it was our introduction to, you know, the other side, man. And it was an amazing introduction, and the Miami Heat handled us with first class all the way through. Karan Butler, my guest. So, of course, before the plane trip, you get the phone call from Pat Riley on draft day. What do you remember about that phone call? And then what kind of influence did Riley have on you and your career? Yeah, you know what? The, the phone call was just the call I've been waiting for my whole life. You know, somebody with – you know, um, leadership quality, somebody who I respected from afar for so long to, you know, uh, give me the, the much needed guidance that I needed. You know, um, I was going to, I was willing to work hard in whatever I did in life to be the best that I possibly could be the best version of myself. And Pat Riley, you know, you can't tell the story of basketball without saying his name. And, you know, it was the perfect guy to, you know, come up under his wing and um, just learn the game, you know, learn valuable insights about being a professional on and off the court. And he embraced me. He embraced me with open arms. The Miami Heat organization embraced me. And it was like that for the whole duration of my career. It wasn't like that just while I was there. You know, he still kept playing seeds in me for the duration of my career and still do it till this day. So I'm forever grateful to Pat Riley. Karan Butler, my guest, that's interesting because when you talk about planting seeds, Karan, like he would leave notes in your locker. What would he tell you in those notes and what do they mean to you? Yeah, you know, he would talk to me about life things. Like, uh, you know, just talking about me, uh, just saying like staying focused, staying on the right track. You know, life is bigger than you know, just basketball and educating me on, you know, just real-life experiences. Like, he left one the other day. He said, Warriors don't live in the past. The past is dead. Life is now, and the future is waiting. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields until we meet again. May God hold you in the palm of his hand. Like, always insightful things to, like, just keep you, you know, humble, but at the same time, you know, thriving and staying goal-oriented throughout your journey. And at the same time, you actually picked that up. Years later, you started to leave notes in Kevin Durant's locker. What kind of things would you tell KD in those notes? In those notes? Yeah, you know what? I, I told him when I came there because one of the things that I saw immediately is that here's a guy that he's ex- – He's so talented, but do he really know he's the best player possibly in the world right now? 
And what I would do is I try to just bring it out of them even more. And sometimes you just need to hear messages. You know, you may have your support and cash. You know, you had an amazing mother there supporting them, his brothers, his, his camp. But you need it to come from your peers sometime. And, you know, we're so competitive by nature, we forget the little things. And I just said, hey, man, look, out of eight million people, out of over 8 million people in the world, you're, you're the best. You're one of the best basketball players in the world. You're the MVP. You're our leader. You're, and it was things that he needed to hear to really excel and take over and push us forward. And, you know, in the MVP speech, he thanked me for it. And I was just passing it forward like I will continue to do for, you know, the duration of this side of my career. Just passing it forward. Karan Butler joins us for a few more moments. His book, Tough Juice, is an amazing read. You know, you mentioned Kobe at the top of the interview. Riley traded you here to Los Angeles, and now you're playing with Kobe. What was that experience like for you? It was amazing. You know, it was, you know, because Riley talked and told me how to prepare, you know, but Kobe actually showed me from a physical and then took me on the court and showed me the game and all the things that I received, all that information that I received, I was, I was able to take that component and then add it to my game. And then when I went to Washington, I was able to become a, a all-star and things like that because I was just soaking up that knowledge from him. And he's been like that the same way, for all of my career, somebody that I consider a friend long after basketball, you know, still in steady contact with him, you know, uh, text him yesterday, hit me right back. You know, that's that's a brotherhood that's, you know, for life. You're crying. You made it official this week when you announced your retirement, so it got me to think about your career. And well, the first thing I think about when I think about your career is I think about a guy who battled for his team and his teammates no matter what. And then, of course, that time, and you and I have talked about this, you ruptured your patella tendon in Milwaukee. You got to your feet because your mother and your grandfather or grandmother and wife and other loved ones were in the stands, and there was no way you were not going to walk off on your own power. So how would you like – that's how I remember you. How would you like NBA fans to remember you as a player? You know, I I, I summed it up exactly uh, the way I wanted to in the Players' Tribune um, post that I wrote. And I said that just always remember that whatever I had in me, I gave it my all. You know, on the court, off the court, you know, I was never too big for anyone. You know what I mean? Like, it's, 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 it's just one of those things in which I gave everything that I had in me on the court to be the best version of myself and in the community that I was in and all the teams that I played for, all the organizations, they know that, that I went above and beyond to, you know, perform in the court, on the court, but also in the community to be that, 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 that guy that someone can just, you know, aspire to be, you know, and, and, and encourage the communities. I want to talk some more about the Pats and Josh McDaniels and exactly what happened there because he's taking a lot of heat the Pats are getting a lot of heat. How did that come down? He obviously committed to the Colts. He obviously committed to three guys that he hired to be on his staff, and they committed to him. So exactly what happened here? Looking back at this now, and we don't have every single detail, but as you look at this, I think getting lost in all the butt hurtness of Josh McDaniels scorning Indy at the last second is one small detail. The hood and the crafts obviously made him an offer that he could not refuse. So while I know there are only 32 head coaching jobs in the NFL and that McDaniels may have permanently removed himself as an option for 31 of them, 
What could the Colts do to match the Hood's reported offer of opening up the vault and letting McDaniels see behind that curtain? I mean, when you look at it that way, really nothing. Because if you spent 15 years working for that dude, 15 years of probably getting nothing more than a grunt hello in the morning or a grumble goodbye in the evening at midnight on your way out the door, how could you not stick around after a reported 15 hours of meetings where the hood promised to let him in on all the Patriot secrets? He was going to let him in and let him know about how he sees football, how he manages the salary cap, how he built that roster, the dark arts of what makes the hood the hood. I mean, 15 hours of that with the hood and the crafts. 15 hours. McDaniels was probably sold after 15 minutes, but tried to spend or spend the rest of that time squeezing out as much info from that situation as he could. Bob Kraft, you know, there was a report that they made him an incremental increase or not that much of an increase in pay. Yeah, that or he probably said, hey, Josh, we can make you the highest paid assistant in the NFL. We can give you a four-year extension. We can, wink, wink, promise you that you'll be the guy to replace Bill Belichick or one of the lead candidates when he's ready to retire. And McDaniels was like, all right, all right, that's good. That's good. That sounds fine. I might even be willing to call Indy and say, I don't want to do this. Except I got a couple of quick questions for uh, William over there. Sure, Josh. What do you need? What do you want to know? Anything. Anything, Josh. What do you want to know? All right. Let me ask you this, Pops. Will you let me see the draft board? Uh, Okay. Will you let me sit in on trade talks? uh, Not all honesty. Can I help you with actual game planning? Can I say or have a say in who we draft is our next quarterback? Will you talk to me when we pass in the hallway? Will you let me play with your Civil War figurines? Can you tell me what Ernie Adams really does? Will you show me how you cut up all those sweatshirts? I mean, the fact that McDaniels is still there probably means that the hood said yes to all of that. I mean, what's to say that a decade and a half went by and the hood had, already, had not already done these things? I mean, what's to say that McDaniels had TB12 on the weekly speed dial as they were breaking down plays, but Belichick probably walked into McDaniels' office while he was cleaning it out and noticed a family photo? Like, because he was there. Reportedly, he was cleaning out his office and ready to go. Belichick probably walked in there like, Hey, Josh, you're married? Since when? When, when, when did you get married? You, you got a wife? Kids? You got a kid? Kids? How many kids? Two kids? Four? Hey, listen, again, I'm not condoning what Josh McDaniels did. In fact, it was kind of scummy on some level. I've got no issue with him deciding that his assistant's job is better than the head coaching job at Indy. I've got no problem with him saying, I need to do what's best for my family and keep my kids in the school district they're in right now. I mean, can I tell you, every decision that Janet and I make is with our kids and the school district that they're in currently in mind. 
Honestly, every decision we make is about the school district that our kids are in. So I get that. If McDaniels made that decision based in large part on that, I get that. I even get the decision that he'd rather be an assistant coach than a head coach. I get that. I just don't get the way he handled it. You don't commit to another franchise and then get three other guys and their families to commit to come work for you. You don't do that and then not follow through on your word. Again, I've got no issue with his decision, only how he handled that decision. It's a bad look. That said, that said, let's all be real for one minute. Let's get real for one minute. I wonder how many of you listening would be having a second thought about a job and then your current employer comes to you with something better, tells you how much they love you. How many of you would actually say, nope, 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 gave my word to the guy across the street? I mean, just be real. Be honest and be real. Some of you would say that for sure. Some of you would say, hey, too little, too late. I already gave them my word, and I gave some other members of the team that I recruited my word too. Some of you would do that, but not all of you, not a lot of you, and certainly not a lot of you who are killing this guy for doing just that. When you yourself would do the exact same thing. Be real. How many of you would actually say, nope, I gave my word. And I'm going to go to a place where I have all these doubts, all these concerns. I don't know that I want to work for the guy that I'm about to go to work for. And my family likes it where they are. But I gave my word, so I'm going to go. How many of you would do that? Not very many, probably. I know not all of you. I know some of you killing this guy would do exactly what this guy did. Now, some of you would do the right thing. Some of you would follow through, and I respect the hell out of it, but a lot of you wouldn't. So don't be a hypocrite about it. He jacked it up for sure. He jacked it up for sure. McDaniels handled this very badly. He jacked it up for sure. Just don't act like some of you would not do the same thing because you know you would. And you know what happened here, don't you? I'll tell you exactly what happened. They lost the Super Bowl, something they did not see coming. They lost their rocket scientist in Matt Patricia. They know the hood is not long for that gig. They were about to lose McDaniels. And then all of a sudden, Kraft and his kid thought, damn, now what? What are we going to do? Never mind what is the hood going to do without his two coordinators. What are we going to do when the hood leaves, which might be in a year, which might be in two years, and we already lost those coordinators. And I'm looking out over that tree, and I don't see anybody in that tree that's worth bringing back or that's hireable. Think about that. All the assistants that have gone off, not very many of them have done anything. Bill O'Brien's done a nice job. He's not coming back. So I'm sure that the Crafts thought to themselves, we're going to lose the hood in a year, maybe two years. We just lost the rocket scientist. McDaniels wants to go. Who are we going to have to run this place? Screw it. Give the kid what he needs. Give him what he needs. And by the way, give him what he needs, then we're covered, and it will be another way to screw those bastards in Indy for the Flategate. And here we are. Here we bleeping are. Here we are. Here the f*** we are. That's how that goes down. Jeremy Bloom is my guest. Jeremy, it's been a little while, but it's great to have you on the show. How are you? 
Good to speak with you again, Jim. I think the last time was back when I was battling the NCAA or somewhere around that. I think you're right. I think you're right, yeah. Jeremy. It's amazing. I can tell you. It's great to hear your voice. I'll be honest, though. You've got one of the most ridiculous resumes that I've ever read on the show. How do you have the time and the energy to get that all done? A lot of help. <laughs> right. A lot of a lot of help around me, like really good people around me from a young age and you know, good good sport mentors. I met John Elway when I was like thirteen. I'm like, gosh, I wanna be you and then I didn't grow past five foot nine, so that didn't happen. <laughs> but uh but yeah, just just been around a lot of great people and had a lot of help. All right, so we got lots to talk about and not too much time, so let me get right at it. It's a really interesting week for you in the sense that the Eagles win the Super Bowl on Sunday and you've got the Winter Olympics getting underway. Earlier this week, you tweeted out a video of being drafted by Philly back in 2006. What do you remember about that phone call? Oh, gosh, it was probably one of the most exciting days of my life. I mean, I dreamed about being drafted in the NFL from, from pretty much the day that I could walk because my you know, parents were big Denver Bronco fans. And my dad grew up in Philly. And I had aunts and uncles and cousins there, and so it was like a homecoming for me. And I have so much appreciation for the Eagles for giving me an opportunity to experience, you know, life inside the the, the NFL walls. Jeremy Bloom joining us. So they're having their parade right now, and the city's just going off. Then on top of that, you've got the start of the Winter Olympics. When the Winter Games roll around, what kind of thoughts and memories do you have then? <laughs> yeah, I was actually up in Minnesota with Team USA and and did, a, did an event up there just, just to promote the Pyeongchang Olympics and then to have the Eagles in the Super Bowl. It was uh, a, lot, a lot of, you know, a lot of great memories representing the United States. I got a lot of great friends competing over there and, you know, was able to catch up with a lot of Eagle fo- former teammates. So it, it's a pretty cool week. Uh, you know, pretty special week for me and, yeah. and a lot of other people. Jeremy, I'm glad you brought up representing the United States because you had incredible success in football. You were an All-American. You got drafted into the NFL. Also great success in World Cup skiing. But what was it like to represent the United States in the Olympics? You know, the, the sense of, of camaraderie and just the, the honor of representing your country in the Olympics, I don't really think anything can compare to it, at least athletically. I mean, you know, playing in front of 80,000 people for the University of Colorado was you know, playing like Oklahoma and Florida State and getting a chance to, to, to live inside the NFL. And obviously that's, the, you know, one of the most popular leagues in, in the world. But, gosh, walking in opening ceremonies with that American flag, knowing there's 350 million people back home that, that you're representing, it, it's a tremendous honor. Um, it, it, it's a tremendous feeling of pride. And it brings a heck of a lot of pressure to <laughs> A ton of pressure. Jeremy Bloom, my guest, a lot of pressure. I want to get to that in a minute, but I remember back in the day there was that famous commercial comparing you running with a football, dodging tacklers to a mogul running freestyle skiing. Great commercial, but how accurate was the comparison? In other words, when you're in the moment of competition, are there similarities or are they totally different experiences? Yeah, mentally, they're very similar. You know, the way you prepare mentally for, for the Olympics, you know, for, for my sport. I had 22 seconds, so I trained my entire life for 22 seconds. So, you know, that takes a lot of mental ability to prepare for that type of pressure. And, you know, preparing to play in the National Football League or in a Big 12 championship game requires that a lot. But physically, you couldn't find two different sports. I mean, skiing, you're in a ski boot and like a cast. And, you know, obviously in football, you're using a lot of ankle flexibility and upper body strength. So, yeah, physically, they're totally different, but mentally, they... They played off each other a lot. Or right, so you had this amazing year in 2005. You won six straight World Cup events, which was a record. Then at the 06 Olympics, the snow was a little bit icier than it had been during training. Your takeoff into the D-spin 720 was not perfect. 
What do you remember, Jeremy, about that run? And then what was the feeling when you looked up at the board and you saw that you were fourth with two skiers to go? Jim, you're using good lingo. Okay, First man, right? Freestyle skiing. There you go. Wow, well, I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, in my sport, one little break in the knees, literally like one inch is the difference between fourth place and, and first. And I knew it as soon as I crossed the finish line. I knew that I, you know, albeit a very small mistake, that's the sport of freestyle skiing. So it was tough for me. It was really hard. I mean, winning an Olympic gold medal was probably my biggest, my biggest dream. And, you know, I, I left that one, uh, I left the meat on the bone there, but, um, you know, that, that next, uh, the next week I was at in Indianapolis at the NFL combine and the month after that I was drafting the NFL. So you know, things, things turned around pretty, pretty nice. They turn around really nice and really quickly and you've had this amazing life. But Jeremy, the fact of the matter is some guys do not get past that. Some guys never get past that leaving meat on the bone, however you want to put it. How were you able to process that, process that as quickly as you did and move beyond that the way you did and have the life that you've had? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's two different ways to deal with adversity. You can splat or you can bounce. And, you know, you can use that inertia to kind of re- recalibrate the compass of success. And, you know, I drew a lot of inspiration from a lot of successful guys. Look at Michael Jordan. He was cut in high school basketball. And, you know, Steve Jobs was fired from, from Apple. And Walt Disney was fired for a lack of imagination at the right. first publishing job he had. So I, I drew from that, and, and I said, I'm not going to allow it to define me. I'm going to learn from it, and I'm going to move on a 1,000 miles an hour. Let's go. Now, listen, it would have been very easy for you to make a living as Jeremy Bloom, famous former skier, football player. That's not what you've done. You've become an entrepreneur. You've started a nonprofit, and I'll get to that. But when did you first start thinking about life after skiing and football, and then how did you go about preparing for it? When I was 19. I I was 19, and I just won my first world championship in skiing, and I just finished a a freshman season at University of Colorado where I was an All-American. And, you know, part of me was on, on cloud nine, but the other part was like, gosh, what? You know what's next? What's what am I going to do after sports? And it was a, it was a really scary realization. And so I just you know started planting seeds then, and a lot of them didn't you know go anywhere. But when I was in the NFL, I uh, I did a Wharton program, went to the Wharton Business School through the NFL, and uh, you know took some MBA classes and and got some experience interning at, at Peter Lenneman's American Land Fund, and one thing led to another. So I was able to you know build a transitional bridge from professional athletics into being an entrepreneur and starting a nonprofit and you know redefining myself all right so before you go in 2008 you founded wish of a lifetime it grants lifelong wishes to senior citizens what was the inspiration behind that you know my grandfather taught me to ski by throwing little miniature sized candy bars down the mountain and you know he was one of my heroes he flew 17 missions over world war you know over germany and world war ii so I love that generation, and I think I'm the luckiest person in the world to be able to spend, you know, we're granting over one wish per day now, and, you know, to World War II veterans and Korean War veterans and just some of the most remarkable people you could ever imagine, and we show up and say, hey, what's that one thing you've always wanted to do? And, uh, yeah, it's pretty special. It's wishofalifetime.org if you want to go take a look at some of the wish stories. It's truly a remarkable generation, and we love hanging out with them. Yeah, honestly, I say this with all sincerity. It's one of the best ideas I've ever heard. It, it's amazing. It's a, it is a remarkable generation, and you've granted more than 1,700 wishes. Jeremy Bloom. Jeremy, one more time. If people want more information about that, where do they get it? Wishofalifetime.org. And by the way, we've got a big campaign coming up on uh, Valentine's Day. Uh, people all around the country are going to go and show up to hospice and, and senior living houses and hand out roses. And if you want to join us, all you got to do is bring a camera, buy a few roses, and we'll put it on our, our website. We're going to hand over 50,000 roses on Valentine's Day. So, you know, more information on that, but it's going to be fun. 
Bam. There it is, clones. Thursday down. Now it's on a TGIF. The grind always includes Friday. I'll catch you tomorrow. See you then. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it. Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.